And I think there's a lot of frustration uh, among many countries that the U.S. has used its dollar hegemony and they want to get away from that system into something else. I think that we're not too far away from a major breakout in the price of gold. So it's, it's been trading underneath its all-time high. It has now been going on for, for quite some time. And it's just, it, you know, if you look at, you talk to, to chart people, they say, this is good. It is marking time. It is gaining power. It is gaining strength. Really blast out. And when that happens, everybody will wake up. When that will happen, I don't, I don't know. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Kirill Sokolov. Kirill is the chairman and founder of 13D Research and Strategy, which he founded back in 1983. Kirill has been an advisor to many of the largest pools of capital in the world over the last 40 years. 13 of these researches, major clients include money managers, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, hedge funds, and business leaders all over the world. Two of their publications, uh, What I Learned This Week and What Are the Markets Telling Us, are two of the most influential and widely read research publications in markets. Kirill is well known for some of his major market calls over the years calling the bull market and bonds in the 90s and the technology boom and bust in the 1990s, and more recently, the reversal in inflation and bonds since uh, 2020. So it's a great pleasure to have you with us, Kirill. How are you doing? Well, it's really a pleasure to, to be with you, and thank you for inviting me on. Well, we always like to start off by getting a sense of uh, our guests' backgrounds and markets. I know you're widely followed, and most people probably know your story, but it, just to kick off the discussion, can you give us a sense on how you got interested in, mar in financial markets and your journey over the years? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think that I wanted to get paid for using my brain. And that's something that <laughs> you, you are able to accomplish uh, being in the financial markets. You know, markets are, uh, you never can master them. 
you know, is we attempt, we study, we learn, we hope we, we have learned, but it's, it's infinitely interesting and changing. It's a dynamic that's never boring. It can be very frustrating, as it has been recently. I'm very happy to go at the trend once it begins, but I'm happiest when I'm alone and when everybody disagrees. So an example would be, I wrote a book in 1982, Is Inflation Ending? Are You Ready? And everybody thought it was inflation forever. And I was, you know, a handful of people who believed this, but long-term treasuries selling at uh, 14, 15% yield were the buy of a lifetime, and people thought there were certificates, certificates of confiscation. Or that I was in Hong Kong in uh, 1991, 92, which was uh, the cheapest market in the world, the best earnings record, and um, four or five percent uh, yield and four or five percent, four, four to five times earnings, and it was selling at a China discount, the Hang Seng Index, and I thought it should sell at a China premium. So that that's the kind of thing that I like doing, and they don't come around often, but uh, they do come around. And that's where you make the big money, but you have to be patient. Good stuff. Well, I touched on, uh, I suppose, a call you had made recently around bonds and inflation, and it was a prescient call back in 2020. Bond yields were obviously unusually low at that time. And we've since then had a spike in inflation and and bond yields have adjusted. Uh, And that was very much the theme of 2021 and 2022. Obviously, as we went into 2023, we had a disinflationary force and um, equities bounce back and bonds have been, you know, I guess have been up and down in a range since then. But plenty of people I read and listen to are kind of now suggesting we're on our way back to, to what things were like maybe in 2019. But curious to get your thoughts. Do you still think that structural regime shift call is still valid uh, looking ahead? Well, if you look at, at bond markets and I've studied them, I mean, the long term, it's they go in 20, 30, 40 year uh, moves. So, you know, we had, um, it was a bottom, I think in 1942, uh, there was, a, a, a top in, in 1981, as I mentioned in yields. And so, you know, so we were in this, in this bull market and bonds for 40 years. And it was for me, every single moment was when is the turn going to come? This doesn't, doesn't go on forever. And people, people are linear thinkers generally, so the longer something has gone on, the more confidence they have that will continue. And we started to see market action telling us that, that uh, inflation-sensitive stocks were starting to come back and come alive and that the prior winners were starting to fade. And we took a stand on that in September 2020. And in early 21, we turned very bullish on, on oil and oil, oil stocks. So... Um, I, I think that the you know the bull market in bonds is over. It doesn't mean there can't be rallies, but I think bonds are to be sold. And the implications of the long-term secular bear market in bonds is is massive because of this huge amount of capital that's tied up in, in, in fixed income all over the world. And where is that money going to go? So I don't see that changing. You know, if there's a hard landing, if there's a recession, the Fed will be uh, panicked and once again stimulate and throw money at the system. The dollar will get weak and things will be stimulated. You know, we've seen this game uh, many, many times. So it's just, we're just in a waiting game to see how it plays out. But I feel quite confident that the bull market in bonds is over. And you could actually be very simplistic and you could look at the, the last 40 years through 2019 
and make a list of all the things that had happened and you would reverse them all. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess that's the next question. Uh, people who make that case for the structural shift point to, as you say, globalization versus deglobalization. Now we're into decarbonization, possible changes in demographics, um, and rising debt levels, and uh, and maybe the end of the what you know the Washington consensus and the, and the neoliberal order. Um, of all of that, I mean, would you point to one or two factors that's been more significant in in determining this shift, or is it a combination of all of the above? Well, there, there's a lot of different factors. Uh, we have um, one of my themes is is uh, wealth creation and wealth distribution. It's again, it's a constant of history. And I could argue that wealth distribution began in China in 2009, shifted to Brazil with the Brazilian car wash in 2012, and then, and then um, you know, Trump, Brexit, and so on. Uh, so wealth distribution is, is inflationary. Uh, reshoring, French, French shoring is inflationary. Uh, national security is now influencing economic policy and decisions are being made that are not necessarily uh, economic. Uh, you have inflationary expectations. You have water and, and soil. You know, soil is not in the right place. It's being eroded. We've been blessed with good weather for so many years, but this extreme weather is, is going to influence that. I think there's, uh, you know, the commodity um, sector is, is hugely underinvested. And if you're really going to have an energy transition, you're going to have to have massive, massive money will have to be spent on copper, for example. You know, so there's a lot of other factors that are taking place. Demographics is another one. I've studied demographics for 25 years, became very interested in Japan in 1997 because of what I saw happening there. And I thought that, that uh, a global baby bust was deflationary. Uh, and it was, it, that's the way it worked in Japan. Uh, but now we have the largest retirement of the adult working population uh, in the, the you know, developed world ever since capitalism began. So that is very inflationary. Now, obviously, you've got robotics, you've got artificial intelligence, but the shortages are in, in carpenters and electricians and, and you know, people who are doing the work that you can't replace with technology. So be, between 2000 and 2020, the world job force doubled because China entered WTO, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe uh, joined the global economy, and a lot of women joining the job force. That is now reversing. So yeah, that all together, and it's a it's a big secular secular uh, headwind that the Fed can't control, can't deal with, and can't solve. Okay, I mean you touched on the demographic point, and also Japan, and and, and I guess linked to that, now people talking about possible J Japanification in China. Um, you know, China is an interesting one because you're talking about this argument around the pool of workers and which I think is kind of in line with the Charles Goodhart book, um, that China will go from being a disinflationary um, force to being an inflationary force. Um, but obviously at the moment, we're seeing def deflation in China and, and, and there is this concern that that might be prolonged. Is that just a cyc cyclical phenomenon? And do you think over time we'll work through that and that China will start to become a, a, a more of an inflationary force most, in the world? The Chinese economy is the most competitive economy in the world. So there's this huge competition. And 
they, they tend to create excess capacity. And uh, that's what we're seeing, seeing now. I don't think uh, China's going to go the way of Japan. I think that uh, there's a lot of, of tool, tools in the toolkit. China has more policy room than, than virtually any country in the world, which we're starting to see them start to use. Uh, for example, the compensation of the management of SOEs is now being tied to stock market performance, which for China and SOEs is, I mean, this is historic show. I think it's really, it's a confidence issue in China and a good to 30 or 40% rally with public participating, you know, would, would help confidence a lot. But, you know, the Chinese government uh, deliberately broke the property bubble. So you're bound to have a lot of, of uh, repercussions from that. You know, look at what happened in, subprime. It took, you know, it was a big shakeup to, to confidence for a number of years. So that's what we're going on. It's going on now. But I, I think, I think China's going to be, going to be fine. One of the things that people mention is, is China's debt, but they don't take into effect the asset side of the balance sheet. So the government owns, uh, the SOEs, uh, most, most of the percentage and the SOEs, uh, net asset value is 70% of China's GDP. Uh, so if you put a two multiple on that, which is really, really low, you get 140% of GDP that's, that's an asset. And on the debt side, the, the debt to GDP for the federal side is 21%, the lowest, lowest in the world. And the, the uh, municipal is higher, you know, it's 60 to 80%. So you put 100%, worst case, 110% on the total debt as a percentage of GDP with the SOEs being potentially worth 140%. So it's really net debt free to the tune of 30% spots. Then you have demographics in China, which people talk about endlessly. And you know, since I've been in this, this study for 25 years, I point out that China's uh, working population peaked in 2012, but GDP doubled since then. So for every argument, there's a counter argument. Sure, yeah. I mean, obviously, a lot of people point to China as being very cheap at the moment from a stock market perspective, but at the same time are slow to invest. Or there is this question, is China still investable? I mean, you're a student of history, of geopolitics. I mean, how do you grapple with that kind of cheap valuation versus the potential geopolitical risk that, that is there? Well, we, we made a shift to invest in... Uh, uh, deep value and high dividends in November of 21. And, you know, our index, our, our China deep value uh, index is up 42% since then versus 10% for the S&P. So even in a big bear market in China, there were ways to make money. This year we're up uh, a little under 6% versus 4% for the S&P. So uh, I think that's one point. It looks to me like there's been just massive foreign liquidation. I think there's, um, you know, it kind of fed on itself. And when all the foreigners are out, you know, <laughs> there's no one left to sell, but somebody was, somebody was buying. And the one who was buying was probably more informed than the, than the, the, the seller was. Uh, I think one potential risk, uh, but I think it's probably discounted, is, uh, you know, a Trump win and 
Lighthizer runs his economic policy and they decide to put 10% tariffs on and, and really force uh, the trade uh, deficit for the U.S. to to be drastically lessened, I wouldn't say that the, the risks of that are are zero. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a real risk. But how much of that is already discounted in, in the prices? Hong Kong has been down for four years in a row. No asset class has ever been down four years in a row. Even in the Great Depression, there were rallies. <laughs> so, is it just historic extremes? And the kind of, of market that I that I love to, to be involved in, because you know there's, there's no hot money that's going to rush out. There's no uh, there's, there's, the prizes are all going to be on the upside. Not that you just you know rush in right now, but you, you know you gradually start to look around for for bargains, and uh, the government is really taking it seriously now. There's no question that they're they're moving. Okay, and. I mean, the great hope for the Chinese economy that people always are looking for is just rebalancing and economic growth away from being driven by investment um, and, and net exports, I guess. Um, but that still seems to be slow to come along. And, and as people, as you talk about, there is a, seemingly a, a confidence crisis, which has accentuated in the last while. I mean, when you're looking at China and Hong Kong, are you looking at for partic- particular catalysts um, that that might drive that change, or is it more you're thinking of? Okay, we're just going to buy these assets because they're cheap, and you know, over time, it, things will work out. You're absolutely right. I mean, you can have a value chop, and what's going to be the catalyst? The fact that the government is is you know they've been doing sort of uh, piecemeal uh, policy actions, but when you add them all up over the last four or five, six months, they're really massive. They seem small. Each time it happens, but if you add it all up, it's it's really significant. And one of these days, it'll start to catch. I don't. This is not my expertise, but I suspect that uh, we had a low right after the party congress. It was sort of very emotional low, and then we we had the rally on the reopening, and then we had a deep test uh, of that October twenty twenty two low. Uh, which was done on more bearishness, which is what you want. You want a you know a test as quite a quite a time afterwards, and you want it to be on more pessimism. So, you know, you can make an argument that we we've seen the low. Interesting. I mean, one of the things that you, you talk about in your uh, in your publications that I read recently, uh, in terms of the kind of inflation picture, you say history is inflationary. So, uh, I was curious. Uh, but what you meant by that, or I mean, you're a student of of history, obviously. When you look at where we are at the moment versus the, the kind of longer term um, uh, picture, are, are there parallels that you're seeing between now and the past, or is it like the 1970s, or, or what would you draw on from history in terms of the outlook for inflation? Well, the 70s, uh, you had the Arabs quadruple the price of oil because the dollar was weak. And Burns had uh, pumped the, uh, the economy to get Nixon reelected. So there was a lot of inflation in the system. And then Burns uh, tightened up. And somebody made a comment not recently that Burns complained that the data was inaccurate. So maybe he isn't at inflationary as the market seems to, to, to think he is. And I would say the same thing is going on now. I think the data 
in the U.S. economy is extremely conflicting. Uh, the difference between uh, GDI and GDP uh, is historic. Uh, the fact that hours worked is down so much and hours worked is more important than, than job creation. And, you know, so is the message, uh, are we getting the correct message from the data? I would say at this moment, the 70s is as close a period as we can find. There was a very sharp deflation in the mid-70s. Uh, you could buy a townhouse in New York City for 40000 in 1977. Uh, Don Bren uh, bought the Irving Ranch, which is the largest undeveloped parcel in California for, you know, I don't know, 500 million or something, something ridiculous. And um, the deflation bottomed in probably 76, but there was a two and a half year period where it was very deflationary. But the, the, the system hadn't been purified, if you will. And then, of course, the Shah was overthrown and oil had another big run. And, you know, my study, at least in the last inflation since the 70s, is that it's been oil-driven. Oh, it was 73, 74. It was uh, 78, 79, 80. Uh, the 2000s uh, was the same. And so if you look at the oil picture, everybody's got a different opinion on it. I, at I, I, various times in my career, have known a lot about oil. In the 2000s, we were the biggest bull on the planet. We rode oil from 20 uh, to 140 and 350 uh, in, in six years. But I, I think we're not investing enough in, in, in oil. And this could continue to be that way. They keep talking about uh, peak demand. It, it doesn't happen. It keeps on you know, roaring ahead. So I think the oil picture, if you look out over three to five years, is very bullish, which is inflationary. So you know, it's the same, it's the same case. And I was reading something that I, by somebody I thought was quite astute and he was saying that in, in the second wave, you know, in the 70s, the inflation really hit the bond market hard. First wave, it didn't hit it so much in the U.S., but in the second wave, you had that bond market crash where in early 1980, uh, Treasuries were yielding 8%, and three or four months later, they were 12%, and then Volcker started to tighten, and then they went down every single day uh, in 1981 until September 81 when they bottomed. So uh, th that's what I think at, at the moment. But, you know, we're living in unprecedented times and we haven't had QE before. We haven't had QT. We haven't had uh, central bank intervention on, on the scale. We haven't had fiscal dominance. We haven't had the treasury uh, in such a, a bad fiscal situation. So there, there are unknowns out there that we have never experienced. And we have to be very flexible, which is why we study what the markets are telling us so closely. And in terms of the oil markets, and you could put copper in there as well, you know, there is that long-term bullish case that people allude to under investment in the sector. But at the same time, you know, obviously with oil, we had a spike on, on Ukraine, but it's since come down and it's been very stable. And even though we've had tensions in the Middle East and the challenges in the Red Sea, it's just been pretty rangy. Has that been a surprise or is it just uh, the market's in, in equilibrium at the moment, but looking out ahead, um, things will change? Is that how you read it? Well, we were looking for a, you know, a, a pause or a sideways time. 
uh, you know, it, it, gold, I mean, excuse me, oil and um, oil stocks had done so well in that two-year period that we do, do for a rest. You know, if you listen to what the Saudis are saying, they're very serious about maintaining the price. And, you know, you have more countries are, are joining OPEC. So OPEC is OPEC plus one has never had, had more power. And, you know, then you have depletion and that's what's six, seven million barrels a day. So you have to, you have to replace that. And then you have to meet the, the new increase in demand. And it really was shale that, that saved everybody's day. And shale is really the Permian. And, you know, we have consultants who study the Permian and the Permian is not going to produce as it has for much longer. There's a very good case to be made that we're, that, you know, the rate of growth has slowed significantly and that there could be uh, some significant downside surprises. One point I would make that, that it's not probably well known is that OECD demand for oil peaked in 2004 and it was emerging market demand that drove the demand. And that's the same, same case now, except if these are big countries, India, you know, Indonesia, uh, making a lot of money with, with people wanting a better standard of living. Africa is coming along. Brazil is, is, is booming again. So I just don't see uh, oil demand you know, being curtailed. I just see it continuing to increase. And if you don't explore for it, you're going to have a problem. I mean, you, you're talking about India, Indonesia, Brazil. You didn't include China in that. And it's interesting, China seems to have shifted heavily towards solar. I mean, is that, um, what's your read on that? I mean, it's obviously driven by their partially geopolitical, I guess, or, or how, do, how do you see it? Well, so uh, China um, installed more solar last year than the rest of the world put together. Uh, and, you know, they're turning a, a resource that was a negative, the Gobi Desert, into a solar field. And so, you know, that, that's the way you're supposed to do these things. But on the other hand, China's uh, coal usage is also increasing. China is definitely leading the green energy revolution. There's no question. It's amazing what they're doing and, and, how, and how advanced they are. A friend of mine went to, went to um, China to look at uh, these solar trucks, solar-powered trucks, which, I mean, solar-powered truck, this was news to me. These things are amazing. So there's a lot going on. But it, it's, it's a transition it's Vaclav Smil did a wonderful book on this subject, the way the world really works. And he argues that energy transitions take 50 to 150 years. But this time, because fossil fuels are so ingrained into our system, it's going to be, it's going to be a long time. Is it 2050? I, I don't know. I don't know what the numbers, but I know that not enough is being done. We are not exploring for COP. And we can't energy transition without copper. So uh, mines are being depleted. Uh, I think last time I looked at this, copper exploration budgets were one third below their 2012 highs in nominal terms. I mean, when we're going to have increased demand of 13 million metric tons a year uh, by 2030. So I don't know what will happen, but the logical assumption is that the copper price is going to go up dramatically. But the assumption is, 
And I think we'll wake up one day and that's what will happen. I, I guess uh, on a related topic, we're starting to see this with uranium, which I guess is a, a similar theme. And, and obviously in the markets in the last year and certainly in the last month, uh, uranium prices have, have really accelerated to the upside. Do you see that as being pretty much the same scenario? I do. And, you know, I've been studying uranium for, for decades and concluded that it was the best uh, source of, of electricity. But you had all of the, the accidents, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, you know, the uranium nuclear explosion in, in um, Ukraine, and that just turned people off. But there is, is a massive shift going on. I think uh, at COP, uh, the recent COP28, 22 countries declared their intention to triple uh, nuclear energy capacity. I've got a, I own a, a company that has, uh, owns the, the hard rock uh, uranium in Sweden. And up until a couple of months ago, it was worthless, but the Swedish government went 180 degrees from banning uranium exploration to uh, every CEO of a major company in, in Sweden has written a letter to the government saying, we need, we need to go nuclear. So this is going on. And because of the underinvestment, uh, there's a shortage of probably 40 million pounds a year. And the price has to be significantly higher to stimulate, uh, stimulate expiration. So it's the, it's the same wherever you look. I mean, they're not investing enough in energy, in oil, not investing enough in copper, not investing enough in, in uh, uranium. So somewhere out there is this crunch. So, I mean, just taking that on to the next level, you know, there's a few different dimensions of this. Obviously, at some point, it'll be inflationary uh, is, is one thesis. I mean, the second thing is, within this, there's winners and losers. Obviously, the US has a lot of cheap natural gas. China has progressed on solar. Europe is caught in the middle with external energy dependence, um, but no obvious uh, solution. Um, so how do you see that playing out kind of U.S. versus Europe versus China. Germany has, um, has shot itself in the you know in the foot, and it's now buying uh, imported LNG at three or four times what it paid for imported uh, uh, Russian natural gas. So it's lost its competitiveness, and the Europeans are not going to be able to compete against against uh, China in electric vehicles. The Chinese were, were very smart because. They understood a long time ago that they could not compete against um, the German engineering on you know the luxury uh, conventional uh, vehicles. Uh, so they made the shift into EVs, which they own, and they own. I mean, I I think their uh, their prices are uh, maybe a few months out of date, but half of what the De Gaulle prices. I mean, they're just so price competitive, and the Europeans are in a bind because. They have a lot of industry in China. There's a lot of uh, car sales, for example, uh, you know, the, the big, big um, German manufacturers. So if they, if they put up uh, barriers uh, to Chinese EVs, there's going to be a backlash. And also, why should a vehicle that can be 30% cheaper, why should it be, be banned? So, you know, I don't know how the politics will play out, but, but logic tells me that it's going to be very difficult 
for Germany, uh, Europe to to keep uh, Chinese EVs out. Very difficult. Yeah, and you talked about possible Trump tariffs as well. But I, I mean, is that a concern over the next kind of one two two years that we're heading to a much more protectionist, uh, tense environment? Well, I've studied protectionism a lot. I think it's terrible. It's usually against. The U.S. already has the highest tariffs since Smoot Hawley. And there was a guy named Jude Wineski who wrote a book in 1978 or so arguing that the passage of Smoot Hawley caused the 29 crash. And he showed how it was just going through Congress. It looked like it wasn't going to happen, the market rally. It looked like it was going to happen, the market went down. And, um, you know, it was very authoritative, the analysis he did. Because what it does is it breeds similar protectionism. So you shut me out, then I shut you out. It's called beggar thy neighbor. It's very destructive. And we just have to watch. I'm told by people who are close to the Trump administration that it is, or the, you know, the Trump uh, group, that this is politics, but it won't be done. I'm just not so sure. So we, we just have to watch this. Okay, um, just, um, I mean, taking it on a bit to, uh, to the next level in, in terms of some of the specific themes you've been talking about and, and writing about, uh, and I think a lot of them are all linked to this general shift towards a high inflationary or a higher inflationary environment, probably more volatile. I mean, firstly, from an asset allocation perspective, you know, for 40 years, the 60-40 worked very well, you know, equities went up. Bonds did fine and they were negatively correlated. And then we had a shift and a lot of people said it's the end of 60-40. You know, look at alternatives. And then obviously last year, even though the correlation between bonds and, and equities stayed positive, people, there was less talk about the end of 60-40. So, I mean, from a high-level asset allocation, if somebody was saying to you, what should a kind of a long-term portfolio look like for the next 20, 30 years, what would you be saying to that person? Well... I would not want to own bonds, and then I would want to have a, a high allocation to to um, to gold and gold mining, uh, copper. We like India tremendously. I think um, you know China deep value and high high yield is is interesting. Uh, we have a food security index. We, we love uranium, as I mentioned. Japan is 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 doing well. Uh, the government really wants to get the stock market up and wants to get more participation. So I like to be in markets where the government wants higher equity prices. I, I tend to be in my own portfolio extremely uh, focused, but that's not the way the, the world uh, invests and you need to be uh, many different themes. But I think the you know, de-dollarization and a secular inflation is is uh, is a good way to be position, positioned. Okay, so, um, you touched on gold, which is often a asset that elicits very emotional responses. Uh, gold bugs versus skeptics, and uh, you know, obviously, gold had a very strong run twenty start of this uh, century, um, and then kind of flattish for a period, starting to pick up again, and. I guess uh, if you were to if, if if you took the starting point to 1970, it's probably you know outperformed cash. But obviously, if you went back another 40 years, it was it was it was fixed. So it's kind of hard to assess. Why why are you such a fan of gold on a kind of a long term basis? Well, any asset is really a supply demand story. 
you know, if you're adding $2 trillion to the dollar universe and you're adding 1% a year to the gold universe on a supply-demand basis, you, you can move up and go. And if you look at the last 25 years, the gold is up 617% versus the S&P, 288%. Now, obviously, you know, what, what period you choose to, to look at is, is significant, but uh, gold has done a lot better than people are aware of. And it's been consistent, and I would argue it's been manipulated. You know, you look at billion bank traders uh, in gold who sentenced for manipulation. I mean, you know, just don't have to reach too far to see the evidence. And I remember uh, after Volcker left the Fed, he said his greatest mistake was to let the price of gold go up so much in 1979. So every central banker is thinking, uh, gold goes up, this means that our currency is not, is not respected. Having said that, the central banks are now buying. I think the confiscation of Russian foreign exchange reserves, or whatever we would have called freezing, um, which is really confiscation, never going to be given back to the Russians was a wake-up call for many countries who hold treasuries and who think, you know, China, U.S. is going to go at it. It's going to be decades. You know, it's never, it's never going to be peace. It's never going to be resolved. It's going to be less tensions, more tensions. You know, it'll, it'll be, this is not going to be resolved. But will America uh, force me to trade less with China? And the lever is the treasuries that I own. Uh, so, I think we're seeing quite a bit of this liquidation of treasuries. And by surprising places, I was in, in uh, Singapore in the last March or April when uh, the Singapore Monetary Authority announced the, uh, the purchase of, of, of a lot of gold. And I had lunch with uh, two prominent Indian business people, one of whom was building uh, grain reserves for the Indian government to double grain reserves for security reasons. I said, well, what do you make of this? He said, well, I can't tell you um, what it means to Singapore, but I can tell you what it means uh, to the Indian government. They're going to see this decision by Singapore as de-dollarization. And I think there's a lot of frustration um, among many countries that the U.S. has used its dollar hegemony and they want to get away from that system into something else. Uh, the Chinese are leading in, in quantum uh, communications when they're creating a, uh, a communication systems for BRICS uh, countries. I think that we're not too far away from a major breakout in the price of gold. So it's, it's been trading underneath its all-time high. It's now been going on for, for quite some time. And it's just, it, you know, if you look at, you talk to, to chart people, they say, this is good. It is marking time, it is gaining power, it is gaining strength, really blast out. And when that happens, everybody will wake up. When that will happen, I don't, I don't know. And do you think, I mean, is that, a, is that a gold story and a dollar weakness story, do you think? I mean, as long as I've been in the markets, which is since the mid-90s, people have been worried about the long-term role of the dollar, its reserve status, etc., and it seems to chuck along, um, but the concerns have come up, you know, uh, uh, about again after the financialization of the dollar. Uh, well, what's your thoughts? Well, currency has, uh, it's a unit of account, it's a medium of exchange, and it's a store of value. The medium of exchange is definitely shifting dramatically. Countries are trading in their own currency. The Chinese are 
paying for oil to the Saudis in RMB. And so that's well underway. Uh, the reserve currency status, I don't think is as important as it was. I was very involved in the emerging aging crisis. We actually got it really well. And the lesson for those countries was you must maintain large foreign exchange reserves because hot money in, hot money out. So now these countries are, are trading um, maybe in their own currency. They're not dependent on, on you know, the U.S. The, the PBOC has swap lines uh, with them, so that's another source. So the need to hold large foreign exchange reserves has drastically reduced. In fact, foreign central banks stopped financing uh, the U.S. government in 2014. So this is, was well underway, this process. So I think when we think about reserve currency, we have to think that it just doesn't have the importance that it did once. And uh, it was the head of the, the Dutch uh, central bank who wrote a letter to the head of the ECB, I think it was the fall of 2022, who said to the you know, ECB, you've got big losses in your bond portfolio. Why don't you, why don't you uh, mark to market your, your, your gold holdings? I forget what they value them at, but it's less than the U.S. And you know, that, that, that could, should change things too. And so there's a lot of, lot of moves uh, underway. There's a move to have a BRICS currency, it's gold-backed. There's a conversation uh, in Russia about having a ruble, ruble that's gold-backed. So there, there's a lot of things that are, that are in process that, that could change this dynamic of, of a so-called reserve currency. Okay. I mean, with respect to China, they've seemed to have been you know, stop start in terms of the internationalization of the renminbi. It, you know, they don't. They seem to want the dollar to have less significance, but they're not overly keen for the renminbi to take up that mantra as as a reserve currency. Is is that uh, how would you how you would see it? Well, I was in I was in China. Uh, I was went around the world actually during the GFC, and I was in China for a week or two during that. And it became very clear to me that. First of all, China did not want to be dependent as much as it was on the fickle U.S. consumer, but also China understood the danger that systemic risk could impose on the Chinese economy, which is why they, they have been slow to open up their capital account. And this is why my friend Charles Lee, who so brilliantly invented uh, Hong Kong, Shanghai Connect, Hong Kong, Shenzhen uh, Connect, a way to to get around this this capital issue, so you can buy Hong Kong stocks, or the outsiders can can buy um, Chinese stocks. Uh, it was a brilliant uh, conception, but I don't know if that is going to change, and I'm not sure it's necessary for it to change the way that China is is going forward. And you know, if 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 um, let's say the Saudis want nuclear power power plants, or they want a five G system. And so China buys uh, oil, for, pays with RMB, and then the Saudis then buy you know, 5G from China. So the old idea where there was this huge wealth transfer after the Arabs quadrupled the price in 1973, and Kissinger devised the system of um, recycling uh, these these huge imbalances back into the U.S. Treasuries and back into the U.S. banking system that no longer works. That is not being done. That money is being kept at home. 
for own domestic purposes or for for political purposes to you know to finance other countries in their growth. And is is the implication of that then with less surplus being recycled? Does that mean higher yields in the U.S. over time or a more challenging financing situation? Yeah, that's exactly what we're seeing. And you know, as I said, foreign central banks uh, stop financing the U.S. treasuries, and you know, it's like you know, you add two trillion to the the number uh, of dollars, and at some point, would you have enough? And the U.S. Congress just doesn't seem to understand that there is a finite amount that you keep doing this. And, you know, we would argue the U.S. has fiscal dominance now. And it's, it's Janet Yellen who's really controlling things. Okay. Before we get on to that, you mentioned a bullish case for gold. Two related ones, uh, gold miners seem perennially out of favor, but have and haven't participated in this run-up in gold to any great extent. So curious to get your thoughts there. And, and then obviously what people think of as digital gold now, or you, you seem to be a fan of Bitcoin as well. Well, I think that uh, gold mining stocks are the cheapest asset on the planet. And the next cheapest asset is, is gold itself. Uh, you've got a market cap of the gold miners, which is 250 billion to 300 billion when Meta announced its its uh, you know its buyback and dividend, it went up almost by a like amount. So, I mean, talking about an industry that is is so incredibly cheap, and if and when gold breaks out, I believe I can argue that there's a, a severe shortage of physical gold, and when it breaks out, that physical shortage will be really manifested. And the only way you can get exposure to gold is going to be to the miners. And the miners always go up more than the bullion in, in, a, big, in a big move. So that's one. Um, the average annual gold price is up 20% since 2011, which is close to the last top. Yet the miners are down 40%. It's an incredible discrepancy. Granted, their costs went up in the last few years, but their costs are now going down anywhere from 14 to 25%. The, the reserve life of the, of the big miners has declined 30% in the last 10 years uh, and unbelievably under-owned. The, the, the percentage that's owned globally of gold, it's a percentage of, of, of AUM, is probably under 1%. And at the peak in 1980, it was 8%. So it is massively under-owned. So when, when the Fed pivots or something breaks or something changes and the dollar gets weak, this would be the catalyst to set this off. Or maybe, maybe gold, you know, taking off is the catalyst. You know, it's, we're in, we're in uncharted times and I don't know which comes first. One of the headwinds for gold, maybe going back a couple of years, was actually people were, were buying Bitcoin as an alternative. Do you, do you see them both benefiting in this type of scenario this time around? Well, I've, I've invested uh, with, uh, with crypto uh, VCs. Many of them are buying gold. You know, what's, what's interesting is I can make a case, and I have done this, that gold is the best barometer of inflation, deflation. 
And you, you see all through the 80s and 90s, gold was trending down. And gold bottomed in 2001, which is when I turned bullish on it, at 250. So what happened is gold bottomed in December of 2015, what, 1050. And that was the end of the, of the deflationary pressures that was very severe, crash in oil prices. And then gold went up, you know, it was a stair step like this. Uh, but gold peaked in August of 2020, just before the inflation arrived. Now you would say, how can that be? You can say, well, gold went up in anticipation of the inflation, and then it anticipated that the Fed would tighten and real rates would go up. So that's when it had its direction. You know, if we think of gold as, as a magnificent barometer, it will help us understand what appears to be conflicts. I mean, gold is supposed to go up in inflation. Well, it does, but it anticipated deflation and anticipated the Fed's response to it. So, you know, Bitcoin, I think it's, I don't think it's either or, I think it's, it's both. You want to have both. Okay. Obviously, throughout your career, you've been very good at identifying structural chips in the macro landscape and in the economic landscape. The big question people are grappling with at the moment is AI and is AI going to be a, a, a huge change for our, our, our day-to-day lives, our working lives and, and the markets. And obviously we're seeing the benefit or, or the impact of AI on stocks like NVIDIA. I mean, from an economic perspective, you can make a bullish case on productivity, et cetera, that would offset some of the concerns around resource capacity that we have. Um, so how do you balance those two kind of uh, forces that, that are underway in the economy? Well, we've been studying uh, AI for 10 years uh, starting in 2019. So it's, you know, it's not new to us. Uh, the adoption rate of AI is like nothing that's ever happened before. And I think in India, 85% of, of the Indians are in some way or form using AI. And I think in the States, maybe it's 40%. So it, it's a huge adoption rate. The question is, there's no question it's going to be big. The only question is, when will it be big? Is it now or is it 10 years from now? And I don't think anybody has the answer. I just, I just don't. And certainly the Mac 7, which is down to Mac 4 now, reflects a very bullish case. So it's, it's in the market. Can it go up more you know, with all the money they're spending on AI development? I would argue probably not, but stranger things have happened. Okay. I mean, is there a parallel with the internet and dot-com boom? In 2000, ultimately, it did change the world, uh, but valuations were, were too high at that time. Yes, I, I think there is. And I remember that period very well. It was a very painful period while, while we were waiting for the bubble to burst. And I remember my good friend, Julian Robertson, who was a value investor and had the largest hedge fund at the time, closed his fund the day that the NASDAQ peaked. Well, that's the irony of the pressure of markets on psychology. And I know your good friend, Danny Druckenmiller, also um, went from bearish to bullish in, <laughs> just at the peak as well, momentarily. So um, it, it, it was a painful uh, uh, turnaround. You mentioned India there briefly and their adoption of AI and, and a lot of people now looking at India as the next China or as the next source of growth. Do you see that? Is that, is that how you see it? Or, I mean, 
when you think of India, that the, the case has always been, well, they've got the demographic um, support, but politically, it's a lot more difficult for India to, to enact policy than, say, versus China. So that's, you know, that's always been a challenge. What's the bullish case for India, do you think? Well, we're very bullish on India. And I have a very simplistic answer, then I get into a more technical answer. If we were a uh, hundred thousand feet and looking down, we would have said, how would we have invested over the last 2,000 years? We would have invested where the people had a lot of vitality. We'd have invested in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, out of an empire, Spain, Portugal, Renaissance, Italy, and so on. And there's no question that the vitality in, in India is exploding. And this is like China in 92 when I was there, when Deng went to Shenzhen and said to be rich is glorious. Communist country just say be rich is glorious. And so it's just unleashed this, this huge dynamism in the people. I think Modi has done just an absolutely spectacular job, how he's connected uh, uh, people to bank accounts, how he's building out infrastructure, uh, how he's, he's brought the underground economy into the, into the real economy. He's fixing the problems. And, you know, it's, it's just extraordinary uh, what he's accomplished. And it just shows what one really good leader can do. So we, we've liked India for a long time. We have an office there. We have a staff. When I look at our Monday call, our Monday Zoom call, I look at the faces. I mean, half of them are, are, are Indians. It's not necessarily a deliberate choice. It's just because they were the best people. Very good. Um, just conscious of time, there was a couple of themes I wanted to pick up on before we close out. One one was around natural resources, and I know that's been a theme. I guess it fits with the underinvestment theme, but but also I guess you know, uh, the, the, I mean, how do you think the uh, the decarbonization is going to evolve? Obviously, we've had some progress, but the general consensus is not enough. Do you think there's going to be an acceleration on that front? And then again. You've got the possibility of Trump coming back, and would that derail things to an extent uh, in the U.S.? Well, Trump doesn't believe in climate change, and it'll be drill, baby, drill, which will uh, tear the country apart. My view, we began focusing on climate change in 2002. There was a 500-year flood in Eastern Europe, and that's a kind of outlier event I look at to tell me that something has changed. Not 50, not 100, but 500 years. And according to my theory of contagion, if it continues, and that was extreme weather events, then it's a contagion until proven otherwise. And the next year was the hottest weather in France's history, you know, Katrina, you know, soon as it leads through. But I concluded that it would be extreme weather events that would drive climate change focus. So in many parts of the world, it's too hot you know, to work. Uh, and there's flooding, and the governments are really scared about what this means. I mean, the, the glaciers in, in Switzerland are, are melting. And so they're scared because they see where it's going. And I think it's, it's the extreme weather events that's driving us. One day, there's going to be a big one somewhere. By that, I mean a hurricane hitting, hurricane hitting South Florida, um, you know, the San Francisco Bay, um, you know, the levees uh, breaking. I mean, th there are many places where you could have a big, a big tragedy. God forbid it happens, but it's just unavoidable. Okay. 
Before we wrap up, obviously you're famous kind of for, for some of your contrarian calls. If you were to pick one top contrarian call, we've touched on a couple at the moment. What what would you say at the moment? Well, I, I mentioned a little bit oil, and I've been a big disinflationist who was bearish on oil all through the eighties and nineties. Did not bottom fish. Didn't didn't buy oil or natural gas in the nineties, and then I noticed that after emerging Asian crisis and uh, 9-11, there was a global recession and commodity prices were not going down, were actually going up. And this is the anomaly that tells me oftentimes the truth. Something that should be happening, it isn't something that isn't happening, it should be. And so I was saying, why, why is this going on? And then I read a book by uh, Ken DeFaze on uh, Hubbard's Peak, which is in effect about peak oil. It's very sensible that you, you cannot get 100% of, of um, oil reserves out of the ground. And when he wrote it, it was 25 or 30%. With horizontal drilling, maybe it's 35%. But you can't get it all out because oil, you know, it's, it's viscous. When we have these gushers we see, that's natural gas. So I, I said, wow, this, this is now, I get it. And I didn't understand yet that China was going on this infrastructure boom. We turned super, super bullish on oil and became the biggest bull uh, on oil in the planet at uh, $20 in January 2002. And we rode it all the way up until June of 2008 at 143.50 when we got up. And I would say that's the major, the major one. Now, and these, these happens, you know, uranium in 2018, I would argue gold miners now, but you have to be patient, you know, and you have to, you have to timing has to be right. You know, you could have turned uh, bullish on oil in, in, in 99 or, some of the smartest people in, in the world who were buying an oil patch in the 1990s, they just were early. And you can be early and wrong. As they say, the, the graveyards of Wall Street are full of people who are right too early. Absolutely. So just before we close up, I mean, good to get a sense on your process for idea generation. Uh, I mean, obviously, I guess you read widely, you talk to a lot of people, I mean, is it a formal process or do you just let it all sit and then the ideas come to you or what would you say about, about that? Well, something will, will um, grab my attention. And a good example is 1988, I read in the Wall Street Journal that it took 70 years to put in a landline system in the UK, 50 years in the US, 30 years in Japan, 20 years in South Korea, but you could do a mobile phone system in one and a half years. I saw everything just from those three sentences, that mobile was going to take over the world cheaper, faster, which meant the developing world would boom. And it meant, if you thought about it, that all information would be available to all of humanity. So I saw that as, as being just so massive. And I, I'll see things like that, like this 500-year flood. I think the Saudi-Iran uh, rapprochement is, is massive. I don't think we, we understand it enough, but to me, that's, that's one of those seminal events that occurs from time to time that people see and they don't attach enough importance to. And I've been, my clients have often said to me that you see things that others see, but they don't think is important. And I'm able just to pick that one thing out and say, wow, that's a big deal. Very good. Well, with the final thing we always ask our guests is, is advice for people starting off, for people who want to get better informed on global macro and in investing in, in general. If, if you were doing it all again or starting off again, and what would you say to people to, to get 
if there were things to do, things to read to get better as a global macro investor? Well, I think studying history is really important. I love I love history. I've, I've read an enormous amount about it. Financial history is fascinating. Uh, there's this book out uh, by Edward Chancellor called The Price of Time, and he writes about um, the dangers of uh, free money and very low interest rates and how it, it distorts the system. That's the kind of thing that gives you a lot of insight. Lords of finance is fanat, phenomenally uh, interesting. Uh, there's another book that is not easy to find, but it's The Bubble That Broke the World by Garrett Garrett, who's a fantastic writer. And he wrote about the uh, you know, 20s and the 30s. And the thing that, that, that grabbed me was, he said, they tried to solve the problem of debt with more debt. Exactly what we're doing now. And it wasn't the 29 crash that caused the depression. It was the Wall Street investment banks had gotten bonds from European countries and sold them to American savers. And when the depression came or when those countries defaulted, they lost all their money. And there's a story about this guy was on the Long Island Railroad. And in those days, it was the prices were in the newspaper, and he saw all these quotes of bonds he'd never even heard of, countries he'd never even heard of. And I remember I was in Hong Kong, I remember the year, maybe 2016, and it was an African country that had never come to market. And they were selling bonds, it was four and five and six times oversubscribed. Now, where I come from, that kind of debt should have, you know, double-digit interest rate, not a four and five percent, six percent interest rate. And this is, this is what's going to hit us is that risk was not priced into, into a lot of the, of the debt. And rolling that over, which is inevitable here at a higher interest rate, uh, but also in a different credit environment, is when we'll start to find out where the real problems are. So I, I think the study financial history is so crucial and so important and so much fun, actually. Absolutely. Well, Kirill, thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Uh, truly fascinating to get your perspective on the global economy and the structural trends driving everything. So as you can tell, it's a truly global macro world we're living in. So it's as important as ever to stay informed. Uh, so tune in again on Top Twitter's Unplugged for more content and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.